Wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and we are here with episode 13. That's right, a baker's dozen of Shut Up and Wrestle episodes. Here we are now at episode 13. I've got a great guest today, and this week he is a fellow wrestling journalist, longtime wrestling journalist. We'll talk about him in a minute. Before we get to that, I want to talk a little bit about uh, some appearances that I've recently made uh, that have been in support of um, my biography of The Sheik, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik which is now on sale, theoretically. I will get to that as well in a minute. Uh, I've been making lots of appearances lately uh, talking about The Sheik, talking about the book, talking about my time at WWE and all sorts of things. So I wanted to kind of plug some of these uh, so you guys can maybe check them out if you're interested. Uh, there's, a, there's a few. I've been busy lately. One of them is The Wrestling Estate with John Corrigan. Uh, the Wrestling Estate's always been good to me. They had me on years ago when I wrote Pro Wrestling FAQ. Check that out. Also, the Business of the Business podcast with Lavi Margolin and John Paz. This was a lot of fun. We really got into uh, the downfall of Detroit wrestling, so you might want to check that out. Also, my personal longtime friend, Dr. Mike Leno, along with Jonathan Steele on Crazy Train Radio. That was very cool. Always a pleasure to talk to Dr. Mike. Uh, the post-wrestling daily news show with John Pollock. This was a live YouTube show. Um, also, a lot of fun. You can still find the link, of course, on YouTube and watch it after the fact. Uh, the This is Wrestling podcast with Zach McGibbon and Lee Versage. That was a good one. Look that one up. And finally, and I owe these guys a minor apology, uh, the In Your Head Wrestling Podcast with Neil Jones. Um, I, I'm apologizing because I had a super crazy Goodfellas kind of day. Uh, if you could imagine what Henry Hill is going through towards the end of Goodfellas when that helicopter's chasing him. I had one of those days and I completely spaced out and spazzed out on my interview with those guys. We did it a little bit later in the evening. We did make up for it. It's available now. So again, my apologies to Neil and company, but it's the In Your Head Wrestling Podcast. So check that out. Um, as for the book itself, so um, as we've been talking about and I've been talking about, there have been some supply issues with uh, Blood and Fire, um, not only on Amazon, but on a lot of online outlets. Apparently there was um, no expectation, I guess, of the demand for this book, which is, I guess, a good problem to have, but not good for the people that are still waiting for their copies for sure. So I've been assured that ECW Press is on top of this. They are working to sort it out and new copies, new inventory is going out all the time. 
So you can, uh, if you so choose, you can stick with your your Amazon orders and 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 keep waiting. However, of course, as you know, if you're fine with a digital PDF copy with a Kindle edition, those will never sell out. You can buy those on Amazon or anywhere else uh, naturally. If a physical copy that you want to hold in your hands, if that means um, the world to you, as it does to me, I can understand that. If you have to have a physical copy, then you might have to wait a little while for Amazon. Uh, in the coming weeks, more books will be available. I also do want to say, though, that another way around that is I am I, I do have some inventory that I have been ordering directly from ECW Press, and I'm selling autographed copies. So um, that you can order from me. If you're interested in getting around Amazon and you order, you want to order an autographed copy directly from me, um, I take all formats. I take uh, Venmo, Cash App, PayPal, check in the mail, however you want to do it. So uh, you can reach out to me, uh, reach out to me on my email address, Solomon at yahoo.com. That's Solomon at yahoo.com. Uh, if you reach out to me there, uh, let me know and maybe, maybe we can work something out. So uh, I'll have more updates in the weeks to come on the availability of Blood and Fire. But for now, let's get to this week's guest. So those of you that uh, have been following uh, wrestling news on the Internet since the earliest days of wrestling news on the Internet, you may know the name of Denny Burkholder. Um, he goes back to the days of uh, I remember him on WrestleLine back when I worked for WWE and we were sort of keeping tabs on what the other guys were doing. Um, he's worked in a lot of different places writing about wrestling. And these days he is a part of CBSSports.com writing about wrestling and other inferior sports. So um, we had an opportunity to talk about our respective wrestling fandoms and about the experiences of uh, being a working wrestling journalist, such as it is. So uh, it was a fun conversation, and I'm going to take you to it right now. Okay, so right now I would like to welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle um, someone I can, I can securely and confidently call a fellow wrestling writer. Uh, I hate to use the term content creator, but I guess we could say fellow wrestling content creator, somebody who's been uh, writing about wrestling for a long time, thinking about wrestling for an even longer time, much like myself. A lot of you probably know him from CBSSports.com, where he's been a longtime writer, editor, producer, and these days is a senior production manager. And I'm talking about Denny Burkholder. Thanks for coming, Denny. Thank you very much for the invite. I love the podcast. I love all this old school stuff. And it's, uh, it's increasingly difficult to find a good outlet to listen to people talk about it or to talk about it because, uh, you know, we're getting old, Brian, and people are, <laughs> dro people are dropping like flies. And I also, yeah. I, also I want to uh, let your uh, listeners know, this is actually the first time Brian and I have talked. We've conversed on Twitter a few times, but we don't know each other. So this could go terribly. You could be in for a really exciting podcast here if it all blows up. I know uh, this could be the end of my my short and and explosive run at, at Shut Up and Wrestle. Could happen. This could this could be the start of a a, a new wrestling Twitter blood feud here. <laughs> but I think it's more likely that we're going to be friends. So just <laughs> I, oh I have no doubt. Uh, just the fact that you have just by your Twitter avatar, which I think is it okay? Is it one of the machines? Am I a complete idiot? Is that what that is? Mean? Yeah, that's uh, I believe Andre in the machine. Okay. Wait a, minute, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. That was never proven. 
we do not know who the giant machine was. I, I am know. like 73% <laughs> sure that it was Andre. Although I know Bruno San Martino said it might have been Giant Baba. Right. And 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 Bobby Heenan, you know, Bobby Heenan was convinced that it was Andre, but you know, I don't really know how much I trust Bobby Heenan, let's be honest. May he yeah. rest in peace. But um uh, for people that that don't know, then just just to be clear, um Tell us, tell me, tell us, I'm talking about like, I'm on like Good Morning America or something. Tell me a, a little bit about, um, you know, the work that you've done at CBSSports.com that's wrestling related. So I have been with CBSSports.com and, and the company has changed names several times. That's how long I've been there. But I have been with this company since uh, I started in uh, 99 as a writer unpaid. Uh, because I reached out to them because in order to graduate college, I needed an internship. And I went to college in SUNY Plattsburgh and a lot of the, I, I was a journalism student and a lot of the internships that were available up there were like outdoors magazines and things like that. And I've never been that type of guy really. Um, so I was like, you know, I went to college with the idea of let's get a journalism degree and see if I can write about wrestling for a living. I was one of the many, probably like yourself also, who thought, man, wouldn't it be great to be Bill after for a living? Yes. Um, so that's why I went to college. And when I needed this internship, I started, you know, looking around on the internet for places where somebody might let me just write about wrestling once a week for no money. And just the only thing I wanted in return is for them to contact my, you know, my, uh, my, uh, I forget what they call it, but basically a professor that's in charge of my curriculum at college and tell them how well I did so that he can give me a grade at the end of the semester. And I reached out to sportsline.com, which was the precursor to cbssports.com. And it eventually became CBS Sportsline. And uh, it, it's gone through several iterations. But I reached out to them and said, hey, I, I know you have this website called wrestleline.com, which at that point was brand new. I think it had only been around for like six months. And I was like, look, I'm not looking for any money or anything, but I, I think I'm a pretty good writer. And I think I know about wrestling. And if you don't mind, I'd like to give you something wrestling related once a week and have you tell my professor if I did good or not. And it turned out uh, the only paid in the only paid freelance work I had gotten up to that point while I was still in college was ECW magazine had given me some cash to write them an article about a show in Binghamton, New York. Turned out just randomly that the guy I had contacted uh, at CBSSports.com had seen the magazine and seen that article and liked it. So I kind of lucked out because that was a cold call. I didn't know. I didn't have any connections. I didn't know anybody there. I, I literally looked his number up on the internet and called him out of the blue. There was no job available. It was just me asking. And he said, Hey, yeah, if you want to do an ECW column once a week, we, we could use that. And uh, I did that for about six months. And then I graduated in May and by July, they had a producer position open and I moved from New York to uh, Florida to be a producer and writer and editor for them. Um, and so I guess they started paying me in like early 2000. And I've been an employee basically ever since. I've Great. gravitated towards production and I've gravitated towards, you know, the other sports, not the one true sport, but the other sports, <laughs> the, uh, the NFL, the NBA, all of that. I, I've, I've been involved in our coverage of countless Super Bowls, March Madness. I've got the NFL draft here coming up in about a month. And I've, I always run the draft tracker for that. I do 
the playoff picture math for the NFL every season. Um, there's a lot of behind the scenes stuff I do, but I always circle back to wrestling. And over the past 20 years or so, there have been times where we didn't have a wrestling writer on staff. And if we needed a wrestling article, I was the guy. Mm. There have been times where we revived it and I would have been the editor. There was a time more recently where we brought back our WWE section and I wasn't involved at all because I was already fully in the production side and they needed me more for that. But I would still kick them a story from time to time. Um, The biggest of which was 2015. I did a really, really long story about Andre the Giant. And uh, after I wrote that story, um, Jason Heyer from, uh, the, I don't know if you know that name, but he was the director yes. of the you know, Andre the Giant documentary. I do. Um, he and I touched base and I ended up talking to him and he was picking my brain because they were about to do that documentary. And I ended up giving him some contacts and some info and stuff. And I'm proud to say I helped get that ball rolling. You won't see my name in the credits, but I did help. And uh, I'm very proud of that article. Um, But yeah, and as I keep telling everybody at CBS, even if I'm not writing wrestling as a job, I can't escape it. I'm always going to be that guy who's sitting there writing things down, putting my thought. I mean, I I started following wrestling as a really young child, and I don't think it's ever going to stop. I might like or hate what I see, but I don't think I'm ever going to stop following it. Yeah. And, and, you know, you've described a lot of us, honestly, just a a lot of people that will just uh, always love it no matter what. And, and I'm one of those people too. I'm like you. And I think, you know, not every old school wrestling fan is like this, but I am, I have to say, even though I don't really talk about it much on, on this show, I am still a fan of current wrestling. I still watch it and, you know, I'll be the first to admit I don't enjoy it as much. I, I I would much rather watch like a 1985 episode of World Championship Wrestling than you know even probably WrestleMania. But but that's just me. I still follow it. I still enjoy it. Um, but um, a lot of people can't do both. You know, it's like you either you love 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 the old school stuff and your your the new stuff is dead to you, which I can respect that view. Or the opposite, where you know you're, you're you're a fan who has no interest in any of, of of wrestling history and only really care about maybe like the stuff since you started watching, which in, for some people's cases is not a very long time. So I'm I'm somewhere in the middle there. So it's kind of nice to to talk to a kindred spirit. But you you mentioned Wrestle Line, and that actually really did take me back because the I I definitely remember Wrestle Line. I'm sure if people are listening to this there's probably a lot of people that remember it there too, but so you were writing there and working there at the time I was working at WWE then. Cause I was there 2000 to 2007. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, wrestle line existed for uh, CBS sports line between uh, 1999 and 2001. Right. Um, but- when did when did you arrive at WWE? <sighs> My first day was Valentine's Day 2000. So oh, you, never, okay. you never forget something like that. It just happened to be Monday morning, February 14th, 2000. <laughs> Love was in the air. So you yes. went to, to work for Vince. <laughs> totally. Yeah, that was it. Yeah, it, it was uh, it was never the same after that. But but yeah, so I think I remember I think that might have been the first time, too, that I came across your name because we used to, um, you know, the department I was in, it wasn't like accounting. Right. So it was like a pub. We were publications and we were we were wrestling writers. So we were trying to keep up with what other people were doing in print and on the web and stuff. And I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure 
that that was one of the things on our radar. Like we were trying to take in as much of it as we could. And in some, cause those were also the early years of WWE.com. And we were contributing to that too, to a certain degree. Yeah. And we had a, back then we had a deal with wow magazine too. Yes. So did we, so did we, yeah. Which was kind of a thrill for me as an old school wrestling fan, because now all of a sudden I'm on the phone with Bill after, you know, talking about things, which is funny because I mentioned that I I did the article for ECW magazine as a freelancer. Yeah. Uh, When I was in college, I used to do cold calls all the time. I used to just flat out look up phone numbers of people that I thought I might want to work with and call them and introduce myself. I did the same thing. And one of the things I did, and that's, that's some advice that I still give to, to writers when they ask me is don't just look at LinkedIn. Don't just look at job openings, figure out what you want to do, find out who can help you with it. And even if there's not a job opening, reach out to them because you never know. But anyway, uh, one of the people I ended up talking to through that process was Bill Apter. And I didn't intend to speak to Bill. I called the wow offices. I think it was from my dorm room one Tuesday morning. Uh, and I just said, Hey, you know, my name is Denny Burkholder. I love wrestling. I'm a journalism student. Um, do you have any need for freelance work or whatever? And I talked to, I forget the name of the man I talked to, but he was in, uh, he was in the administrative side of wow magazine at H and R media or H and S media. I forget what it's called now. Um, but he H&S, actually, yeah. H and S. Yeah. He passed me through to bill after. And I wasn't expecting that. I was like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> and Bill's like, Bill's like, hey, Danny, well, you know, what can I do for you? And I'm like, well, you know, I introduced myself. I gave him my spiel. And I, I was trying to think of something I could write for him. But I did. I wasn't expecting to be put on the spot quite that morning, you know. And I remembered out of the blue that there was some indie show happening two hours away in like, I don't know, Poughkeepsie or Albany or somewhere. That was supposed to have Shane Douglas and also Bruno Sammartino was making an appearance. So I just kind of spit that out off the top of my head. And he goes, hey, listen, if, if anything happens at that show, you can write it for us. How's that? I'm like, all right. I ended up not going to the show because I was a broke college kid and because I hadn't really planned on it. But um, yeah, then fast forward to the WrestleLine days. I was on the phone regularly with Bill and um, communicating with him. And he wrote a column that ended up in on our site and then their magazine. And it was kind of interesting too, because I think I just missed Dave Meltzer um, a few of his things ended up on WrestleLine in the very early days, but I think he was gone from our site before I got there. Yeah, I mean, that were that site was definitely one of the sites that we were checking on a daily basis, like just keeping tabs of. There were certain ones that were on our radar in those early days, like there was things like scoops and online onslaught i can't forget that yeah one. you had uh you had uh scoops central which became yep. scoops wrestling which was al isaacs right and think, al isaacs and, and, and there chris, was chris scott, Hyatt started there right and i remember scott keith doing all the reviews of pay-per-views and raws and nitros and everything and yeah uh oh, what was the other big one uh oh man what well, I'm, I'm drawing a blank but i just remember oh well there was lords of pain but that was that was mainly just straight up news, but, but, you know, we were trying to keep our fingers on the pulse of what was going on. And wow. Was um, wow. Magazine for people that remember, you know, that really was a game changer magazine because it was the response to what was going on where, you know, kayfabe was dying. 
And I mean, it, it had been dying for a very long time, but like the internet really kind of put the knife in between the ribs, you know, where it was like, how can you, because even Pro Wrestling Illustrated and those magazines were grappling with, we're going to make ourselves look stupid if we keep writing this like a work when even the most average fan now knows the score. And so everybody had a scramble. And wow, I mean, we even did at WWE, but but wow was the first magazine to really go all out. There had been things like New Wave Wrestling, and I remember magazines that would give like the real names of wrestlers and all that kind of thing. But wow was the first one that really was like a shoot, a true shoot magazine. And from our point of view, that was the most serious competitor that we looked at. And we were like, we tried to buy them a few times. I, I remember like my boss, Barry Werner, who was the head of our department talking about like they were making overtures to try and just kind of swallow it up. But uh, that never happened. I think they went under before that could even happen. That's interesting because they actually, uh, I maybe after they went under, but Pro Wrestling Illustrated ended up owning those right. assets, right? Yes, that is what happened. Because I think we, we were only interested, and I say we, like I'm like some big wheeler deal. I had nothing to do with the negotiations or anything. <laughs> I was just like, what happened? What happened, Barry? You know, But the, the WWE's interest was mainly, it was the same strategy like they would do with any entity that was a competitor. They wanted to buy it to put it out of business. They had no other interest in it. They wanted, so once it went out of business of its own accord, they no longer had any interest in it. They couldn't care less. So, so PWI, which I think at that time was still London Publishing, I think they they were able to just kind of snatch it up. I mean, believe me, it's like I always tell everybody in any of these bidding wars, whatever goes on, if WWE wants it, they can get it. I mean, if they really want it, they're going to outbid everybody. It's just a question of how bad do they want it. And when you see things that they don't get their hands on, it's because they didn't want it badly enough. That's really all it is. Yeah. And uh, I think with WoW, I mean, I wasn't on the inside of their operations at all by any means, but I always got the impression that, you know, you, you mentioned they're a very slick magazine. It was big. Mm. It was glossy. It was thick. They had a lot of photos. And uh, I always got the impression that they were kind of overextending on that type of thing at a time in history when that was a bad idea as a publisher. Um, right. I heard I something similar from inside the industry that they were just stretching themselves, stretching themselves too thin and too much overhead. And, but, but, you know, I, I kind of understood where they were coming from because their attitude was we're trying to compete with the web. So we're not going to beat the web when it comes to like news and scoops and things. And it's instantaneous. So we've got to like give people this razzle dazzle and these foil covers and these giant slick pages. And that's what did them in. But it was like they were trying to hold the interest of magazine readers at a time when magazines were starting to starting to crumble. You know, and I remember having a conversation with Bill around that time, and I'm sure he doesn't remember. I think he barely remembers me to tell you the truth. <laughs> but um, I and he talks to so many people that I can't blame him. But uh, I remember having a conversation with Bill around that time. I remember having a conversation with him once where he was kind of, I was still pretty green in the media industry at the time. So I was talking to him about all the photos he used to take for PWI for, for the, you know, the quote unquote after mags and how it amazed me that for all the work that he did for them, 
um, he had no rights whatsoever to any of those photos anymore. So when he went to WoW, that was a bigger chance than a lot of people realized that he was taking because everything he had done up to that point, other than his reputation, he could no longer use anymore. Those photos weren't his. They belong, and they still probably belong to uh, that family of magazines, and he didn't get to take them with him. So that amazed me just, you know, as a novice in the business, I didn't really understand that yet. And then later on when WoW folded, I talked to him again when he was kind of trying to decide his next move. And I remember thinking, because he was kind of talking to me, he was starting to, you know, think about, this was before the one wrestling thing or whatever. And, mm-hmm. um, for the first time, he was kind of tr- starting to have to consider digital as maybe the best option as opposed to print. And it was just so strange to me to have a conversation like that with a guy like Bill, because like I said, as a kid, um, his magazines were, I say his magazines and it's really not fair to the other guys, but yeah, inside wrestling, the wrestler, all those magazines, I used to go to school in elementary school with a backpack full of those things. And some of them weren't even current. Like I was in grade school in the mid eighties and I'd have magazines from the late seventies in my backpack, which means I've got all those ads that I probably shouldn't have been looking at in my <laughs> blow up dolls and kung fu courses and all that kind of thing right. right and half of that stuff I was too young to understand anyway but still I shouldn't have had it with me no but uh I, I kind of idolized those guys you know but, but you know we were talking before we started recording about you know what do you consider old school like where's the cutoff for you know as time moves forward and everybody gets older like what's old school wrestling and one thing I'll say is when you're that age, you don't realize you, you really have no concept of time and what's old and what's not old. Like I think about these things. Like I remember you talking about having like old back issues. I remember maybe I was in college, let's say like the mid nineties, you could find a lot of old wrestling magazines out in public for sale a lot more commonly back then. Now you can go to eBay and stuff, but I mean, like I would come across every now and then, you know, an amazing issue of wrestling review or inside wrestling from the seventies. Like you said, it would be like from the mid to late seventies. And I would pick it up. Like I was Indiana Jones or something. Like I had found, (laughs) you know, some ancient artifact that I couldn't believe. And I'm thinking now, and I'm going that magazine at that time was like between 15 and 20 years old. And I was acting like it was like like Frank Gotch was on the cover or something. And I think about it now, and it, you know, that's the equivalent if I found a magazine now from like 2005, you know, kind of fawning oh. over it. But but it's true, like you don't you don't think in those terms when your life is so much shorter, <laughs> and you realize now that that wasn't that old. Like the late mid to late seventies was you know, not that old. I mean, I myself was alive when that magazine came out for one thing. And I was in my twenties at the time that I picked it up. So how old could it be? You know, but, but it's weird when you think that way of the definition of old school changes, you know? And it was also interesting because, um, because of the time in which I was a child, which was the mid eighties, which was the rock and wrestling and all that. And I'm from New York. So that's what I got to watch a lot of. And I lived in a part of New York where it took us a really long time to get cable. They just didn't have the wiring to get to our town, I guess. Yeah. Um, so I was, I was, uh, I could only really watch whatever was syndicated on the major over the air stations, which for us was only WWF. And uh, for a while I had to go to like grandma's house or somebody else, somewhere else to see 
the Superstation 605. I would love going to Grandma's on a Saturday night because she had a she had cable, and then I could watch Arn Anderson and Ric Flair. But um, the thing is, I became a fan primarily because I remember I was watching. I was sitting there. My uncle was over to visit us, and he and my dad had wrestling on in the background, and it must have been late '83, early '84, because they were showing uh, Arnold Skolin throwing in the towel for uh, the Iron Sheik's win over Bob Backlund. And my uncle just lost his mind. He was so mad about that. My father was, he could take or leave wrestling. He would watch it, but he wasn't a fan. My uncle was a diehard wrestling fan and he just lost his mind when the Iron Sheik won the title. And as a kid, I'm watching this. I'm like, wow, (laughs) you know, you just got this reaction out of one of my, uh, out of one of my relatives. So this must be some pretty exciting stuff. And it wasn't long after that, I saw the junkyard dog on TV and he caught my eye. Roddy Piper obviously was, I was glued to the TV, Hogan at the time. But what happened was my father, when he realized I was becoming a huge fan of wrestling, he would go to work and kind of discuss it with his friends. Happened one of his, uh, one of his coworkers was a little bit younger in his late twenties, maybe. And he was a fan in the seventies. And in his closet, he had all these brown paper bags full of the old wrestling review, pro wrestling, illustrated the wrestler, inside wrestling, Ben Strong wrestling, if you remember that one. The ring wrestling wound up becoming my favorite when I collect these old magazines. I love that magazine because it's like they 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 really treat it like a sport, like without blinking once. And I, I just as a writer, I just find that so impressive. Like it's just yeah. it's not an easy thing to do, you know, and they did it really well. Yeah. I love those. And as a kid, that doesn't register. Every you take everything that you read as right. okay, that must be what happened. And Dalt wouldn't lie to me, right? Right. Clearly, um, so- <laughs> the, the four horsemen programmed this computer and it gave them the best methods to destroy Dusty Roads. I mean, exactly. clearly that happened, right? I mean, without question, right? <laughs> so I uh so what happened was my dad's coworker was ready to get rid of this stuff. So one day my dad comes home from work with these armloads of brown paper bags full of old magazines. And I would just sit and read them cover to cover. And I'm learning things like, okay, in this day and age, being like 1985, 86, Pedro Morales to me is a jobber or a jobber mm. to the stars. And I'm looking through the magazines. I'm like, holy crap, he was the champion. And he was really good. And I'm I'm reading through all this stuff. And that's why, like I said, even in the eighties, I would be going to school with like a 1976 issue of, you know, there's Andre on the cover in a two ring battle Royal, or, or there's like a, the crimson mask. I had covers with a lot of that stuff, which probably wasn't great. Probably wasn't great for my psychological development, but I, uh, <laughs> I got through it. I got through it. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's kind of how I educated myself in, in the kayfabe side of things. Cause as you said, it wasn't always, remotely true (laughs) Um, right it was funny too because uh i've i i had the chance to talk to craig peters on the phone a couple of years ago for a project that still hasn't launched but i've got a lot of interviews in the bag great guy um yeah great guy and in 1989 i got a correspondent report published in inside wrestling the may 1989 issue where they would you know the one where they would stack a, a headshot on top of a headshot and say Brutus Beefcake versus Ravishing Recruit, Binghamton, New York. Oh, yes. Benny Burkholder. And I wrote the, the blurb about that match and then a quick outline of what happened in the other matches and they published it. And I was 11 years old and I was, I was like, wow, I actually got published in this That magazine. is awesome. Well, 
a few years ago when I talked to Craig Peters, I found out that he was the guy putting those together. So all those years later, I got to personally thank him for editing this 11-year-old's handwritten scratch on a piece of paper. I probably wrote it in crayon. I don't know. And uh, <laughs> I'm sure they got a lot of that. I just have to say, you know. And uh, he actually cleaned it up and got it in print. And he's like, yeah, you know, that was probably the part of the job I hated the most. <laughs> but he's like, you're welcome. And uh, I'm glad it worked out for you. You know, I had, I was thinking while you were saying that, you're talking especially about, you know, your dad and your uncle. I had an interesting introduction to wrestling as a fan, family related, that I think wound up totally coloring the way I always looked at it. Because I always tell people, and I don't know about you, but I mean, I can't ever say that there was a time where I really believed that it was all a real sport. Like a lot of people do say there was a time that I thought that I, there really wasn't like, I always wondered and ever like every fan you would have, Oh, was this real? Was that real? And that kind of thing. But I never had the assumption even at 12 years old that, Oh, this is a fully a sport like boxing or something. And I think, it had something to do with how I got into it because I had two main people in my life that knew about wrestling. One was my grandfather. And the thing with my grandfather was my grandfather was in boxing. He was a fighter. He was a coach. So, and he had rubbed shoulders with wrestlers over the years, as you, you know, in the boxing world, you do, you know, you know, some of the same people and things. And, but he had that attitude that the boxing industry had, especially in those days, that wrestling is an embarrassment. You know, they really look down on it as a circus and a joke. So he put up with it. He loved me. He took me to my first show. You know, he, he would get me autographs, like, but deep down, you know, he was really skeptical and thought it was ridiculous. So I had that side. Then I had my uncle, a huge wrestling fan, my grandmother's brother, but his deal was this. He'd been watching wrestling going back to the 60s, but he was in the theater. He was an actor. He was a singer. And he loved it because of how ridiculous and theatrical it was. So he loved it. Like he would die laughing. I would watch him like watching Randy Savage cutting promos and he would get such a kick out of it because he knew he was in character. That's what he appreciated as an actor and other things like that. Like he always used to tell me one of his favorites was Baron Mikel Cicluna. And he would love how he would always hide the foreign object all over his body, like through the whole match. And it was like such a show that would go on for the whole match. So like he was impressed with these guys as entertainers, even back then. And that was like seeping into my brain. So I think I always had that assumption that this is more entertainment than sport, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And I, well, a couple of points about that. Like my father used to tell me similar stories. Like I said, he he would watch wrestling and he was amused by it, but he never was a huge, huge fan. He was kind of amused by the fact that I was actually, and he, uh, he would tell me anything he could remember from his youth. And one of the guys he used to always talk about was Baron Mikel Sakuna. And he also, also would tell me about the time when he was a kid uh, and his parents took him to wrestling, probably the only time. And it was in some church and out in the church parking lot, Yukon Eric was sitting on the, on the hood of his car with his shirt off, just chugging a, a big old bottle of something nasty. And uh, that always stuck in my father's mind. But then the other, the other thing is, like you say, you never really thought it was real. I don't know if the younger generation fully realizes because they always say, well, kayfabe was still alive back then. And it was, but 
throughout history, even well before the 80s, society was full of people who would tell you at every turn how fake right. it was. So you were there was never a time when I don't think any wrestling fan was ever completely isolated from no. somebody telling them that garbage is all fake or that's they're they're performing or the bet the mat the one I used to hear a lot, which was kind of ridiculous, was the the mat is like a bed mattress. I've heard that, yes. Or there's a bottle of ketchup under the ring. That was a famous yeah. one I'd hear all the time. Or another one, my friends would always say, well, you know, they pay them more to lose. So that makes it easier when they when they have to lose. You know, all, <laughs> all these rules that kids would come up with. But here's the thing, because I think about that a lot, what you were just saying about how kayfabe, you know, didn't just automatically die like at the end of the 90s. And before that, everybody thought wrestling was real. Like people need to understand. But there were levels. There were like layers. Here's the difference that I find. Like back when before the late 90s and the Attitude Era and Vince McMahon's speech and all that kind of stuff, I think what you had for decades all through like the TV era of wrestling was the public at large, right? For years knew that wrestling was a work that it was quote unquote fake, probably even going back to the thirties with the newspaper exposés and things and Jack Pfeffer and those kind of things that happened. It had already been put out in the open for everybody. No secret. Yep. But I think the difference was, within the insulated bubble of wrestling fans of the people that went to the shows, they really were in an echo chamber and they were in a bubble. And I think I really, and this is totally anecdotal, but my belief is that a significant amount of them less than half, but a significant amount believed that they were watching something legitimate, or at least were willing to suspend disbelief in the moment And I think that is also why wrestling fans in general were looked down on by the general public because the attitude was, look at these idiots that believe this crap. It's like that famous scene in Hannah and her sisters. If you've seen the movie where Max von Sydow plays this like super intellectual character and he puts wrestling on and he says, like, can you imagine the, the kind of a brain that would watch wrestling or something like that? But that was the attitude. I don't think you see that as much anymore because I think even the critics of wrestling don't think that the fans think it's real anymore. So, you know, they have other criticisms, but but yeah. that has that has changed in like the last 20 years, I think. And you 25. can see it if you watch the old footage. I mean, clearly there are people in the crowd who believe what they're seeing. There are people yeah. who sc- there are people in the crowd who screamed when uh, I was actually at this show, but when Randy Savage did the ring bell attack on Ricky Steamboat's throat. You there were there. People, I was there. Oh, there man. were people screaming. There were people crying. They clearly believed that Savage was trying to maim their favorite yeah. guy. Yeah. But there were always even like I said, even then, there were certainly fans who fully bought into kayfabe or at least bought into it enough that you could fool them 90 percent of the time. But they were always surrounded by people who would tell them otherwise. And I don't think there was ever a point where all of us maybe maybe back in like the 19, 1900s, 1910s, maybe. Right. But even back then, the, the fix was in a lot of the time. Right. And, you know, what I've read of that era, too, it's like I was talking about the Jack Pfeffer expose in the 30s. That's kind of when the general public got the, the full confirmation of what they already assumed. But from what, I, from what I've read and understand, like another, back going back to 1911 and the Frank Gotch and George Hackenschmidt rematch, that was like another turning point where – the general public, they didn't get any confirmation, but they were like, 
this is a show. This is ridiculous. Something weird and funny is going on here. But it wasn't widely accepted yet. And I think even before that, the thing about wrestling was the people in the know, and you get this if you find really, really old newspaper clippings, like, I mean, really old, the sports writers, those like grizzled vets, those guys knew 100% what the score was, even when the general public did not. They, they knew totally. And you can tell by the way they would write about it. Absolutely. And I tell you what, I, I can get lost in a newspapers.com rabbit hole like oh, yes. people get lost in a YouTube rabbit hole. And I'll go in there and just search for stuff. And at one point I did a lot of that. Uh, I did a lot of digging into um, that era from like 1900 to about 1940, just to see what the general mainstream sports writers, how they were handling wrestling. And you'll run into articles where a local promoter is found to have been not on the up and up, meaning, you know, they came there expecting a Olympic style wrestling match or a, or a boxing match or whatever. And all of a sudden they discovered that one of them was, getting paid to lay down or whatever. Mm. And so you'd get dribs and drabs in the media. When you look at these archival sites of somebody finding out something that they weren't meant to know. And then the, the local editor would blast them for it or would say, here's what we already suspected, but now you guys can safely stop paying your money to see this garbage. Right. And they would. And I think it got easier for them to take that stance publicly when wrestling embraced more outrageous stuff. Like it got, with Jack Pfeffer, you mentioned Jack Pfeffer with all the outrageous characters and the like, for lack of a better term, he basically would put people out there to grab the freak show audience. I don't sure. want to see wrestling so much as I want to see somebody who doesn't look like the people I see walking down the street try to fight another guy who looks weird, you know? And, um, right. The Bull, the Bull Currys, the Gorgeous Georges. Um, and the more outside of the norm wrestling characters got the easier it got for editors to say look we told you this is all garbage and and that's what i think you know when you get to the 30s where is where wrestling start yeah this is what i love when people talk about you know the realism of wrestling and when it was real and believable and i think you're they're really stretching the definitions of the words realistic and believable because um even by the 30s they had pretty much given up on trying to make it look like a real contest. Like if you watch, like I remember for years, it's not the case anymore, but the oldest existing footage was there was a Joe Stecker and Earl Caddick match from 1920 from Madison square garden. If you watch that, I mean, maybe I'm crazy, but you could convince me that that was a real contest. I would believe you even though it yeah. wasn't. And that's one of the things that I find is kind of revisionist on some people's parts when the old timers, right. and I say old timers, like I'm not like, I'm, like <laughs> but I, the I say, even older timers, right? Right, right, right. But when they come out and they say things like, well, back in my day, it looked realistic. A punch was a punch in it. You could believe it sometimes. Yes. I mean, when yes. Ole Anderson threw a punch, I believed it, but there was never, they, they act like there was a time when there was not weird characters and there was no. not, like there was not Ricky Starr doing acrobatics, you know, they right. act like none of that ever happened and everybody was like Ole Anderson. That's just not, that's just not the case. And it's disingenuous to, to claim otherwise. And I think sometimes they look at like the, the guys who like to complain about AEW or the young bucks or whatever. I mean, you can find clips on YouTube right now of people in the fifties doing outrageous acrobatic sure. roles and stuff where it's clear they're not fighting. They're doing like a gymnastics routine <laughs> right. in a ring. Um, so 
I think wrestling has always had these subgenres: the tough, the tough guy subgenre, the deathmatch subgenre, the athletic subgenre, the sporting subgenre, and like the the comedy or the right. And I, I think that sometimes people only watch one genre that they like, and then after the years pass, they train themselves to think that that was all that ever existed. Well, also, you know, because they were they were getting in trouble too. You can't forget that. Like one of the reasons that they really started abandoning that the shoot wrestling style was people were betting on this stuff. So you're talking yeah. about like going to jail. It's it's not a show. It's not a game anymore. So the attitude became like, well, okay, we'll just make this a cartoon so that any legitimate better or sports fan is going to look and go okay well clearly this is not a sport i'm not going to bet my money on it but hey these rubes over here we could at least get them to buy a ticket to watch it like that was more the attitude of how it changed yeah well i mentioned digging into the like archival newspaper articles and some of them in like the 20s or 30s or even earlier you'll find scandals erupting where the promoter and the wrestlers were all in on the fact that the people at ringside, they weren't just taking ticket money from them. They were, they were orchestrating the bets because they knew who the fans were going to bet on and they were working it out in such a way that they would win the bet money, but not, not the people, but the promoters and the wrestlers. So they were walking out with not only the, the, the house, but with, but with the share of the betting money. And when that got found out, obviously then you kind of, then you're taking it a step too far. You're not just putting on a wink, wink, show now you're right really ripping people off you're you're stealing and and by the so by that point even wrestling was already becoming like this niche thing that was followed by its own fan base you know because it used to be like people talk about this in the days of gotch and those guys i mean he was a national superstar it was you know wrestling was up there with with baseball and whatever else i mean probably even before baseball got really big it was a huge sport and that kind of stopped and it became this thing that wrestling fans are the only people you know that watch that but i think another thing that changed too i'm not the first person to say this when when we talk about what's realistic and what will people buy and people will say well this was when it was real but i think mma did a lot of harm to that because i really think the average person to their credit unless they were some like experienced barroom brawler or jujitsu expert the average person didn't really have a whole hell of a lot of experience as to what a real shoot fight even looks like so it was easier to fool them because even if you watch something great like jack briscoe and dory funk and those kind of matches they're awesome it's great technical wrestling but but knowing what we know now you know when you watch like a shoot fight you can tell that they're working. You can tell that they're cooperating and, you know, the, 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 the spinning toehold, you know, if you wanted to, you can get out of that in about three seconds, probably if you were a really skilled wrestler, you know, and I think that really hurt the business. I, I think the biggest tell for me as a fan was they never block any punches. The guy just stands there and leans in. And it's like, if you've ever seen a boxing match and the, if the guy is any kind of a puncher and you give that to him, it's only going to take him one or two tries to knock you out. So either right. the guy that either the guy that's whose punch you're not defending is really terrible or you are invincible because he just punched you in the face eight times and you didn't even drop to a knee. You know. Right. right. And and, and the look, thing oh to go on, sorry. And not only did you not drop to a knee, but you actually have the physical wherewithal to rebound off the ropes because now he's whipping you across the ring 
and you're gracefully doing it like a gazelle after getting punched in the face eight times. Well, (laughs) as a kid, the move for me where I was like, oh, okay, I I know what this is. You know what it was? It was the arm ringer because (laughs) when they do that move where they where they lift the arm up, this is a visual thing and they like twist the arm and it looks like they're twisting it like 360 degrees. And I'm going his arm would be completely ripped out of his shoulder. Like if he really just did that, you know, and, and he's fine, but yeah, it's things like the Irish whip and, you know, going with the momentum. And when guys are just crisscrossing the ring, like why, why would you, why would you actually do that? You know, that kind of thing. But I think the perception just changes over time. Um, I, I, I saw there's things that, we wouldn't even think about today as exposing the business, which they used to be so careful about. Like um, I found this expose. This I think it was in, if you've ever seen the book that Scott Teal did on all the results from Madison Square Garden, you know the book I'm talking about? Uh, yeah. It's great. It has like results going back, like basically from like the 1800s all the way through like 2000. And there's a newspaper article reprinted where there's this like hard hitting sports reporter and he's ripping the lid off wrestling. And the way he's doing it is he's following these two guys. They're basically two wrestlers working a program. And I think one of them might have been Hans Schmidt or he was like some German Nazi wrestler. And um, he followed them to every town where they had all their matches and he reported back how often they were wrestling each other, how frequently and how the matches were only like a day or two apart and how the results would usually be the same and this kind of thing. And he pointed that out to be like, this is clearly fake. And the reason was, well, if they were really doing this every night, they'd be dead. And (laughs) number one, and number two, in every town they were in, they were acting like this was the match they were going to have the one and only. And then they would go to the next town and do it. And of course, Nowadays, even even the the most non-smart wrestling fan would not blink an eye to learn that news because we've just been conditioned. That's what wrestlers do. They, They go on the road. You have a feud. You have your match in every town on the circuit. And that's what wrestling is. I mean, they would fully report on that in PWI without batting an eye, like without thinking they were exposing anything. But back in the 40s, that was exposing the business to report on something like that. Yeah, and they did. I mean, there was a couple of reporters back then uh, whose articles that I, I've found either through my own research or through people who've written books or whatever that um, they would follow masked wrestlers around until they could see them unmasked. Or they would go talk to somebody that they knew knew that guy and say, hey, just between you and me, what's this guy's deal? Who is he? And why is he here? Why doesn't he want anybody to know who, what he looks like? And it was just funny the lengths that some reporters would go to to try to get wrestling fans to understand that this was just a show <laughs> there was, it was a... also it was also funny on the other side to see how how far wrestling would dig in and insulate itself to say yes we are real and no you can't come in the locker room anymore because you're looking for dirt and you right. know well that's what they would do they would really try they tried really hard maybe not to convince the entire public at large but at least to convince their fans that it was real like um I can remember, I don't know if you've ever seen this phenomenon, but it's actually a little disturbing where um, for, it, 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 you ever see the movie, The Wrestler, the AWA movie, The Wrestler that Vern Gagne made? Yeah. Okay. So there's a scene in that movie where a wrestler dies in the ring. 
Mm-hmm. And Vern, the announcer, whoever it is, makes mention of every famous wrestler who has died in the ring before. And I've even heard wrestling announcers do this on just regular wrestling shows from back in the day. And nowadays we would think, oh, my God, don't mention that because it makes the business look very bad. We want attention off of that who's died in the ring. Back then they were thinking, oh, this is going to make people think this is real. This guy died like they were completely 100 percent exploiting the death of these wrestlers by using it as a way to say wrestling is real because they died in the ring. Yeah. And if I recall, they were actually, those weren't fake names. They were named no. like Mike, Mike DiBiase and people who really had died in the ring. Yeah. Even Ray Gunkel. Fictional movie. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's weird, but again, it's, it's of its time of that era when they went to every length in their own weird way, because like we said, anybody watching it for two minutes could tell that this is a work, but they, yeah. they went to their own lengths within their fan base that they had educated in, in their way to make sure that they remained uh, believers. It was crazy. And I, I, I can give you another personal example from my yeah. own life. I mean, I was, I got into amateur wrestling as a kid and into high school and my high school wrestling coach was a guy named Tim Jenks who was a really great guy and who was a very good wrestler for Syracuse university. And the connection to pro wrestling there is his roommate and teammate at Syracuse university was Mike Rotundo. And they were very good friends. And uh, he used to get such a kick out of me telling him uh, he, I was the only guy on the school wrestling team that really followed pro wrestling. The rest of the kids were very much in the, Oh, this is fake. How can you watch that crap in that camp? And uh, Tim Jenks knew the deal because he was friends with Mike and he had talked to Mike and he knew what pro wrestling was because of that. Um, but because I was a fan, he, he would tell me a, a few stories, but he wouldn't expose it completely, I guess, out of respect for Mike Rotondo and his business. But he was like, he would ask me, I remember him distinctly asking me why Mike Rotondo was suddenly calling himself Erwin R. Scheister and why he was doing this gimmick. And there was a time when he said when Mike first had become, well, this would have been a few years after Mike Rotundo started wrestling because he was in the WWF and this would have been like 84-ish, 85. U.S. Express, well, with Wyndham, right? Yeah, and our town was uh, a small town close to Binghamton, New York, and they had come to town for a match. And Mike called up Tim Jenks to come meet him for lunch at just a McDonald's near the arena. And he said, I walked in and it was Mike Rotundo and Barry Windham and the Wild Samoans. I think he said it was the Samoans sitting there eating. And Tim Jenks was a very athletic, very tough guy, but he wasn't huge. And he said he sat there really tiny watching all these guys wolf down burger after burger and fries after fries. And he was just in awe of uh, the sight of these pro wrestlers just destroying some Wendy's. Um, (laughs) uh, But it was always funny to me because those two guys had the same kind of experience and they diverged and Mike became this very much, you know, career lifer pro wrestling guy. Mm. Tim Jenks was pretty much always the, the amateur, the amateur minded guy. And it was just interesting to hear the two different perspectives. Yeah. Because I mean, even more than with boxing, I would say like in the amateur wrestling world, wrestling was just like a sacrilege pro wrestling to even bring it up to those guys, like, because they just considered how it just made a mockery of what they did. And I think there was also a sense that 
it was limiting their sport in the sense that you couldn't really turn pro as an amateur wrestler, because in those days, especially the only option was not actually wrestling. So, you know, where you'd have to, in their minds, you'd have to demean yourself. You have to put on a costume and all this stuff. And I remember um, when I was in high school, we had, I was not an athlete at all, but we had a wrestling team, Severian high school, shout out to the Clippers. We had a, a pretty accomplished wrestling team. And I think it was either one of the coaches or one of the kids on the squad, a family friend, if I remember this right, was one of the road warriors. I forget which one. And so this was like late eight, like 88, 89. So they probably, they would have been wrestling in WCW or early or late Crockett promotions, whatever it was at that time. And they were going to pull some strings to get the road warriors to come to our school and give a talk to the Clippers wrestling team at our high school. And I remember the coaches shut it down a hundred percent. Like there is no way we are having these two circus clowns come here and talk to our athletes and make a big joke out of this. It's not happening. And every kid is losing their minds because they're going, it's the road warriors. They're like the most famous tag team on the planet. And they shut it down and it didn't happen because of that attitude. That's crazy. I remember getting the road warriors. I remember their AWA VHS tape. Uh, yes. They, the kids classics. I got that in my stocking one year for Christmas. And it was my first VHS tape being a WWF fan. I was super excited to finally get to watch the road warriors because I had only seen them in the magazines at that point. And it scarred me for life when they started beating on Kurt Henning's head and they did the, when his neck was caught in the ropes and they were beating him in the head. Yes. And then they leave the ring and the fans are fighting them down the aisle. And I was like, man, I think I'm going back to Saturday night's main event now. It was, it was definitely rougher. It had that, that, that reputation. Uh, Honestly, all wrestling outside the WWF when we were that age, I remember there was this attitude that a lot of kids had of like, only the WWF is fake. This other stuff is real. Like, because there was blood and there was, you know, the angles and things were more like intense and aimed yeah. at adults. They weren't as kitty. The characters were not as over the top. They did have that characters. Was, that was often by design. A lot of those uh, NWA, uh, AWA, a lot of the time they would fight back against the WWF's dominance by saying, you know, we're real. They would heavily imply that they were real wrestling. Right. They weren't for kids. I don't know if they came right out and said it, but and if you watch their matches, you know, you'd see a lot more blood. You'd see a lot more old school style fight type, you know, matches. it was more, more intense, the style of wrestling and the matches would, would go longer. You know, Hulk Hogan's having these 10 minute main events and he's posing right. and nothing against him. I, th- I think he was great at what he did, but then you'd see Ricky Steamboat and Ric Flair and they're going like 45 minutes. And I'm not even talking about in 89, even before that, when they were like, you know, years before I remember hearing about them wrestling and they're going these like brutal, like two out of three falls and it's an hour. And this was like just alien concepts to us, to us in WWF land. How could you not start to think, wow, this is a little bit more real. This is something's going on here. What is this? You know? Yeah. I mean, I grew up on the superstars of wrestling show where you could see eight matches in 42 minutes, right. including, including time allotted for Piper's pit and the update segment. 
I mean, you would see a series of 90 second matches, which I miss and, now because I mean, like not every match needs to be 25 minutes long and then a half hour long. I'm sorry. You know I mean? Some matches should be six, seven minutes and then we right. move on, you know, and I knew of, I knew of those longer matches because I read the magazines, but the first one I actually saw live was sting versus flair at clash oh, one. Yes, yes, yes. And I remember thinking about a half an hour into that match and Rick flair is not even sweating. How does he do it? Right. That's that's very telling. You could see these guys. One thing you can't take away is the stamina of what they, you know, and being on the road and I think doing it night after night. Like one thing I always point out with current wrestling now, and, and I love Brock Lesnar. I, I'm a big Brock Lesnar defender. But you can clearly tell, especially, you know, in recent years that he's not on the road with the rest of the crew. He's not in the ring every night, you know, four nights a week or whatever it is. And the way you can tell is he gets in there and from like three minutes of throwing German suplexes, he's covered in uh, sweat. He's beat red trying to catch his breath. And, and look, I mean, I think he's awesome. I love the way he works in the ring. It's not a knock on him as a performer, but you can just tell he doesn't have the kind of ring preparedness and stamina that the other people have who are doing it constantly, you know? There have been matches of his where he turns a really uncomfortable shade of purple. Yes. And I'm not a doctor at all, but I'm always uncomfortable when I see that because there's a certain, right. there's a certain shade that you don't want to be. You know? Right. Where, where like his, his lips are turning white or like his, his, <laughs> you yeah, can see, right. His... I think most people associate blue lips with somebody who's dangerously close to dying. And he would turn like that violet color while he right. was in mid-match. I was like, man, maybe we ought to just take a breather, you know? Or it happened. You sometimes forget that these guys are human or, or, or that what they do is not actually normal. Like when, when Ronda Rousey came back, and I promised myself not to talk too much about current wrestling, but when Ronda Rousey came back recently, uh, I forget what, I think it was the Royal Rumble, right? And she got in the ring. She's doing very minimal stuff. She's in the corner basically just throwing kicks and like just staying in the corner and after about four minutes you could see she's hanging off the ropes she's keeping her head down because she can't breathe she's she can hardly move out of the corner and part of me is going like oh this is ridiculous what you know and they certainly probably shouldn't have put her out there if she wasn't totally ready but then you think that's what the a normal human being would be like after four minutes of doing that and they're not like these other wrestlers who can just go like it's nothing and that was one of the things I learned in high school wrestling. And I, I was by no means like a superstar athlete, but just from having done it, I learned that it does not, if you're really wrestling and you're really struggling against somebody who's struggling back against you, it doesn't take long to get really worn out. An amateur wrestling match is only a few minutes long usually. So um, you can get extremely, that's the hardest sport I've ever done. And I did football. I did tennis. That's um, what everyone says. Yeah. Things. And wrestling from the training and the actual wrestling itself is the hardest mentally and physically that I ever tried. And I'm sure that, you know, I'm sure Kurt Angle has probably said that a million times in different yeah. interviews. And Jim Ross too. I always remember like when he was in charge of talent relations, that was something he always stressed. I remember that because he would always say that the amateur wrestlers, and it has nothing to do with, or it, ha it has less to do with their, their knowledge of holds and things. He would say it was the stamina. It was the discipline that they had, the physical discipline to engage in this sport that 
is probably the most physically demanding sport there is. And, you know, if they could do that, then they could do what he needed them to do in the ring, you know? And there's a mental aspect to it too, because it's one-on-one. Yes, on one yes. and it's one-on-one, on one, the whole crowd is looking at you. And even if you're on a wrestling team, quote unquote, you're wholly responsible for winning your match. And everybody's watching you to see if you're going to do it. Yeah. So there's a psychological aspect to it too. You can't hang back. You know, you can't like, I remember I played little league baseball and I would try to hide in the outfield as much as I could and make sure that nobody hit a ball to me. And, you know, you can't do things like that in wrestling, you know, even in boxing, you can, you can like dance around and I mean, you know, sure you can get hit and then you're annihilated, but, but in wrestling, you're right there on top of the guy. And I'm talking about amateur wrestling. There's no way out of it. But the other thing too, before we run out of time, I thought of this and it's related to that. The, and the differences and being able to tell what's a work and what's not a work. Here's the other thing. I'm not the first person to say this either, but one of the biggest giveaways is, um, is actually the exact thing that they do to try to make it look real, which is selling. Because if you're in a real fight, you're not selling. You don't want, in fact, you're trying your best to not look hurt. You're trying to make sure the other guy doesn't know that he hurt you. You're not, agonizingly grabbing your head or or slamming your hand on the mat or screaming out in pain like you're trying to play it off like it's nothing you know so so once you see guys that are dramatically selling moves as ironic as it sounds well you know it's a work i'm trying to imagine an, a ufc fight where nick diaz drops to his knees and says no 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 like <laughs> Like the guys always would do during the during the fiery babyface comeback. Right. Like if you get hit. No, but has any has by the way, side note, in any pro wrestling match in history, has has the babyface ever actually said, Okay, yeah, I'll give you a minute. Um, I'll let you you take a breather to recover here. I I see now that I'm hurting you, and that's wrong of me. So let me just back up. I think that's happened as often as a friendly handshake when the heel puts his hand out to shake the hand of the baby face, just a sportsman-like handshake or, or a Greco-Roman knuckle lock that doesn't end with somebody getting kicked in the stomach or, or having their hands stepped on, you know, just an honest <laughs> Greco-Roman knuckle lock. It's happened probably about as often as that has happened in wrestling. But yeah, I, I can't picture any, uh, any mixed martial arts fight where a fighter would sell something like steamboat as much as, his selling made his matches so great. Great. You, yeah, <laughs> really, truly. He, he would get chopped in the chest and act like he was like in agony and he would make the face and his like whole body would collapse. But, and, and what's amazing is like, that's what made him such a memorable performer. Right. But if you're not a wrestling person or a fan, you're watching it going, Oh, well, this is a show. And it's like, right. it's that weird dichotomy. Steamboat is a great example because like, it really depends on whether you want to believe or not, because I've talked to people about the same famous incident, the crushing of those voice box with the ring bell, the match that you were at. And I will hear two things from people either the more, the more often response I'll hear, cause it's from wrestling fans was I was a kid and I thought that was a hundred percent real. And Oh my God, it, it convinced me. And I was worried about him. I thought he was going to be done and he'd never wrestle again. And I hated Randy Savage. But then the other thing I will hear less, but I do hear it is from people who will say that was the moment that I knew wrestling was fake because of steamboats reaction and how dramatic it was and how 
over dramatized and 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 how he sold it because they, they just had a different mindset they looked at it and went oh okay this is a performance i get it now so so isn't that weird the same react the different reaction to that same exact moment yeah and you know what as a footnote to that that actually became a local news story because and i think this has somewhat gotten lost to history because it was more of a local story than a national one but Steamboat and the WWF ended up getting sued by the local EMTs in Binghamton, New York, because they were, they were, I don't know if they were smartened up all the way or not, or if they fully knew that they were participating in a show. Um, but the, those were real EMTs that came out with, uh, I think it was Pat Patterson and Jay Strongbow to wheel him out on the stretcher. And while he was doing his selling, Steamboat flailed and he knocked into one of the, the female EMTs. And she claimed all kinds of injuries and sued them. And it was in the local papers. And you can find it now if you were to look it up on, on the archives. But um, they actually got some money out of that. And there was fear locally that the WWF wouldn't come back to Binghamton because of that for a while. But they did, thankfully. And uh, I just thought it was funny. And it makes me wonder in retrospect how much they told those EMTs. Like, I'm sure she probably didn't expect Steamboat to be flailing around the way he was. But I wonder if she even knew that that wasn't a real injury. You and this is I mean? probably why they they use wrestlers for these roles now all the time. They don't use real EMTs anymore. And I remember the days of actual cops, right, getting in the ring and breaking up fights i remember that was a regular occurrence at madison square garden the nypd and again this blows away younger fans the actual nypd not like developmental jobbers in black shirts like nypd in the ring guns nike sticks on their belts breaking up worked wrestling fights and i look back on some of those things now and i wonder did the cops know like like were they in on it and to what degree and then you think well if they were in on it is that kind of irresponsible that <laughs> the cops are now what pretending to break up a fight like how did that work it, it, i mean it there, fascinates me i'm sure there was no other crime going on in new york city <laughs> at that moment right? right but um but yeah it's funny even into the 80s when you look at the uh the event that happened in madison square garden in late 84 when dick clark and everybody was in the ring and roddy piper they were giving an award and uh, it ended up roddy smashing the the gold record over lou's head he body slammed he kicked cindy lopry body slammed dave wolf to uh roddy piper used to say and I, I talked to dave wolf not too long ago too and he even said the cops kind of almost ruined that moment because they didn't allegedly they didn't know that everything that was happening was a put on and their main concern was, oh, shit, Dick, I'm sorry for swearing, but Dick Clark is in the ring. We got to make sure everybody's safe because if this gets out of control, we're going to have a lot of wealthy, powerful people in the ring getting hurt. So the cops that rush in the ring allegedly didn't all understand right. that this was planned. And and Piper throws Cindy Lauper to the mat. So, I mean, they were probably pretty shocked. Sometimes I remember I would I, I, I'd like to watch them now when I watch those old matches. I'll watch the cops and you could tell sometimes they just seem to be so amused, like like they even seem to be trying to understand the nature of what's happening right now. Like 
they're just like it's almost like the cops are marking out in this weird way like they're thinking like am i part of a wrestling angle or do i really need to stop this fight and you know it's it's just so interesting that they're they don't seem to even know themselves and from their point of view, it's got to be difficult to thread that needle because even if they're 100% in the know that this is an act and this is all for fun and these guys are professionals, they've still got a job to do if, say, a fan jumps the rail who thinks it's real. Right. Because all those wrestlers, Piper, Harley Race, Ole Anderson, all the wrestlers that have been stabbed in the past, they weren't stabbed for having a bad work rate. They were stabbed by a fan who believed that what they saw was real and believed Ole was a real jerk who needed to be stabbed for one reason or another. So if you're a cop doing security at those events, I'm sure even if you know that it's, uh, that it's all a show you've got in the back of your mind that not everybody is right there with you. And some of these people might try to start real trouble. And that's when you have to start, you know, doing real police work as opposed to just keeping the show in the ring. Right. Well, and then you've got there's that famous story of uh, Black Jack Mulligan at, at the Boston Garden where the fan stabbed him in the calf. I don't know if you ever heard that story. There was a fan that knifed him in the calf really bad, like up the calf. The other wrestlers, I think it might have even been Gorilla Monsoon, like they even just broke character. They came out of the locker room. They nailed this guy. They, they, they you know, secured him. They brought him to the cops and the cops laughed it off. They laughed it off because they thought it was part of the show and the guy got away. The, the, the wrestlers were like, well, OK, well, there's nothing we can do. And the guy just went home and got away with it. And that, that seems that's like the opposite side of it, where the rest there was something real happening and the cops thought it was part of the show. There was a Bobby Heenan story where somebody shot a gun towards the ring, trying to allegedly trying to hit Heenan. And uh, they got away through the crowd partially because. Uh, the paper, the article I read in this newspaper claimed that the fans around this guy were not 100% sure that he really did just try to shoot somebody because they were at a wrestling match and weird stuff happens at wrestling and they thought maybe it was part of the show, I guess. Right. So nobody stopped him. He just shot a gun towards the ring and escaped. The Wild West days of wrestling, really. People, fans today will just not understand. They'll never understand the stuff that went on. It's just crazy. I'll tell you what, I learned some I learned some colorful language in the audience at some wrestling matches when I was a kid. Oh, yes. My vocabulary was expanded, too, I have to say, from going to shows. And I forgot about that until the days of me bringing my own young children to wrestling shows and going like, oh, yeah, I forgot about this, especially if it's these days, especially like indie shows, like non WWE shows, because WWE shows it's it's there's a lot of family and kids. But remember, my, my kids were little. And I had I took them to a Ring of Honor show at the Cyclones Park in Coney Island, the outdoor park where they used to do a show there every year. And um, I was um, a little bit mortified <laughs> by things I was hearing, but I'm not going to blame them. These are wrestling fans at a wrestling show. These are like rough and tumble guys having a good time. I'm not going to like fault them, but I'm thinking, yeah, maybe I should bring my little children to Ring of Honor shows. Maybe I stick yeah. to SmackDown, you know? My youngest son is very into wrestling now. He's eight. And I always, he's also very outgoing. So when people around him start to chant, he wants to join in. I know. There are times when I have to kind of nudge him in the arm and say, no, not this one. You're not, you're not chanting this word. I know. And it was, well, without getting into details, it was a lot worse when we were kids in the crowd watching wrestling. (laughs) Oh yeah. There were things that would make you question um, humanity in general. 
but um <laughs> but you know <laughs> i could keep going on this we we've already gone past the time limit that i had envisioned just because you know there's so much to talk about and when you're talking to somebody that loves wrestling you know as much as you do as much as i do and you know can can talk about we could talk about it till the cows come home and I know you're a busy guy. I'm a busy guy. So we're going to have to put a pin in it for now, but we'll, we'll have All to right. pick it up. We'll have to pick it up. Cool. We'll schedule the return match for a later date. Without a doubt. There's so much to get to that. I, I can't wait to do that. I hope we get to do that soon. Cool. Thank you for having me on. There you have it, folks. My conversation with Denny Burkholder, just a couple of wrestling journalists shooting the breeze. Hope you enjoyed listening in. Um, and I hope you continue to enjoy listening in to Shut Up and Wrestle because we have more great guests, always guests uh, just coming out of the woodwork. And in the weeks to come, you'll be getting to hear from them. So I want to say next week's guest is going to be, uh, this is going to be interesting because it'll be a conversation between two wrestling biographers. Of course, I wrote the biography of the Sheik and this gentleman, for next week, his name is Stephen Bell, and he has written um, the recent book about the British Bulldogs called Dynamite and Davy: The Explosive Lives of the British Bulldogs. So um, Stephen and I had a good conversation about that book, about the Bulldogs, and really just about the history of UK wrestling. If that interests you, definitely check out next week's show. Uh, I also have lined up Brian Greenberg who was the co-director of I Like to Hurt People, the Detroit wrestling and chic mockumentary of the 1980s. And we've got some uh, interesting stuff to go over because I also interviewed Brian for the chic biography. And let me tell you, um, he has some great stories about being around the chic. I mean, the guy was at the chic's New Year's Eve party at his house. So enough said. That's a good one. Also got some other good upcoming guests that I'm working on. Some very special ones. I don't want to say just yet, but it's in the works. It'll be coming. Stay tuned. Now, um, you can find this podcast, of course, wherever you get um, your, your podcasts. You can get them on Spotify. You can get it on Google Podcast. You can get it on Apple Podcasts. You can get it um, at Podcast Attic, Podbean, wherever you find your podcasts, you will find Shut Up and Wrestle. Um, also, you can find me. Um, you can find that. Well, let's talk about the book first. As I said at the beginning of the show, you can find you can put in your orders for the digital book on Amazon, of course, and other online outlets. The physical book is there's still a little bit of a hold up, but reach out to me at Brian R. Solomon at Yahoo.com if you're interested in purchasing a signed copy from me. And now you can find me, of course, on social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. You can find me on Facebook. My Facebook wrestling page is called Pro Wrestling FAQ. That's where I post most of my wrestling-related content. And I also uh, have links on all those social media platforms for my author webpage if you want to check that out. So as always, this has been Brian Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in. And reminding you that you only live once, but if you do it right, once is enough. So long, wrestling fans. 